News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Here we were just talking about airlines and traveling. Now, if Canadians do have that bug to go somewhere outside of the country, although I think most people would prefer to stay here, they actually will be allowed to travel to the European Union starting tomorrow, as a matter of fact. And in the UK in particular, uh, they're actually opening up quite a bit. Pubs and restaurants able to offer some services with some limited numbers. That's going to happen later this week. They're actually opening up museums, movie theaters, you name it. Well, joining us now from London to talk more about this is our Global News European Bureau Chief, Crystal Gumansing. Good morning, Crystal. Good morning. That sounds like an awful lot of stuff that's opening up. Is the UK ready for that? That is the question, right? Uh, at this point, uh, it has been a slow rollout. We've seen, uh, you know, pubs being able to offer takeaway drinks. We've seen uh, shops reopening uh, with social distancing, most of them only allowing one or two to come inside at a time. And uh, a, a lot of use of, of barriers and having people, of course, not use cash, but, but you know, tap cards whenever possible. But yeah, as of uh, July 4th, we'll see a lot more activity. Of course, it's interesting because it comes at the exact same time as um, a, an English community, uh, Leicester, is, which is about an hour north of London, is being uh, put under a localized lockdown because of the number of infections seeing there. You know, we hear from uh, UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson, his, his new thing that he talks about is dealing with the virus like uh, playing a game of whack-a-mole. When something uh, pops up and you need to deal with it, you, you hit that specific area instead of going on these wide sweeping right. lockdowns. So we're in that situation now. Now where we're watching it and and we will probably have more of these situations where we have these lo- uh, localized situations. Right. So so I understand the European Union is kind of opening back up to certain countries, right? Like they've got a, mm-hmm. a limited list. But is the UK on that list? Yeah, so the, the UK is, is it's an interesting sort of situation. because We've been hearing this for a long time from the European Union saying, listen, we, we want to to open up borders. So, you know, the usual flow of traffic that would be allowed between countries, um, local governments had stopped that because of the virus. So they want to see things go back to the usual free flow of people. However, even with those, you know, some 15 countries that are being allowed for foreign tours, it's still going to come down to local governments making those decisions. For example, on that list, not only is Canada on the list, but New Zealand is on that list saying, yes, you know, foreigners traveling from New Zealand can come to the to the European Union and and you know spend their tourist dollars here. But New Zealand's uh, prime minister has said, no, we're not we're not doing that. We're not at that point. So a lot of countries, while they people may be allowed to travel their own governments are saying, no, we're not there yet. And we have to find that out from Canadian officials. You know, at this point, um, foreign non-essential travel is not recommended. So it's not only governments saying, yes, come here, but should they, will they, and if they do, will they face any kind of quarantine measures on either side? Right. But as you pointed out, though, the numbers in the UK are not as great as the numbers in the rest of the European Union, is it? Yeah, the situation is, is very, very different, right? And and the uh, you know if, if it was earlier on, we saw of course Italy and Spain and those places in a lot of trouble because their their healthcare systems were overwhelmed. However, these are a lot of places also that you know are in financial difficulty. They need these tourism dollars, and there is sort of a, a 
almost a fight going on now between balancing the, the, the health of citizens and balancing the, the financial health of people. Because, of course, we know as economies, um, you know, start to constrict and, and people get stressed out, then you're going to have all other sort of health type situations uh, from that. Mm-hmm. But as far as the UK, there's still a lot of pushback here because people are being told, well, if you travel abroad, you're going to have to go into quarantine for two weeks. So it really is an interesting question. It's not as clear-cut when it comes to travel in the days of the pandemic. It certainly does not seem clear-cut. Crystal, thank you. You're welcome. Take care. You too. That's Crystal Gamansing, our Global News European Bureau Chief. So yeah, that seems kind of weird, doesn't it? Oh yeah, we're opening up to travel from certain countries, but really those countries don't want their people all of a sudden traveling internationally. That doesn't seem to work at all. I don't think that makes a lot of people very comfortable either. This is Mornings with Simi. If what they're saying is what, what Air Canada and WestJet is doing is acceptable to them, they need to be explicit and they need to explain why it is. Strong words there. That's BC Health Minister Adrian Dix yesterday reacting to the news that Canadian Airlines are going to resume with fully booked flights tomorrow. They're going to put an end to the social distancing they had been practicing by not making that middle seat available to be booked. As of tomorrow, it can be booked, meaning planes will theoretically now be full. So passengers who may have booked a ticket before uh, this weekend had no indication that they were potentially signing on for a packed flight. And we don't know at this point if Transport Canada is actually going to intervene. Uh, You heard Health Minister Dix there uh, wanting some kind of explanation from the federal government as to how it is you're going to allow this to happen. To talk more about this, we're joined now by Winnipeg epidemiologist Cynthia Carr for her perspective on the risk that this might entail. I should add here that we put out a lot of requests to talk to different people about this. Uh, Transport Canada, the minister responsible, Mark Garneau, WestJet Air Canada, everybody, they all declined at this point to be interviewed, but you can bet there'll be more pressure on some of them anyway, the government in particular, to talk about this today. So Cynthia Carr joins us now. Good morning, Cynthia. Good morning. So what did you think when you first heard this? Is it, should this be something we're concerned about? Well, understandably, um, people are concerned. Over the last few months, we we hear all kinds of new information. Um, And as we learn new information, sometimes policies change. They become stricter or they become uh, less strict. And, you know, it it is a challenge to keep up and understand why. But uh, the reality is that um, aviation has always invested a significant amount of time in research in all aspects of health and safety, including um, studies related to transmission of airborne disease because, you know, people travel with tuberculosis and other diseases that um, can uh, be transmitted through airborne particles. So um, I understand the concern, and I'm not here to speak on the policy, but I can tell you a little bit about some research about the ventilation on the aircraft right now and, of course, about the requirement to wear masks. I guess the thing that worries people is that we know that in the beginning of this pandemic, it did spread Mm -hmm. by people visiting, going from other countries to other countries and carrying this virus. Can airlines effectively control that? Well, that's a really good point because... The transmission of the virus was related to the movement of people from city to city, country to country. It's not related 
to the onboard impact on the on the actual aircraft. It's related to getting a person from point A to another area where then the virus can take hold and then uh, continue to community-based spread. So there actually is a difference. People are traveling whether there's a person in the middle seat or not. And, the you know, that's where the quarantine and all of those really important uh, policies come in because that is where the spread was happening was transmitting an infectious person from one point to another, not necessarily transmitting it within the aircraft. Right. So now that you're cramming more people on board, look mm-hmm. look at what we're seeing with bars and everything, yeah. people being packed too close together. Everything we know so far tells us this is a bad idea. That's a good point. So the difference is in bars, people aren't wearing masks. Uh, People let their guard down. They tend to be sort of more face-to-face contact speaking because it can be a noisy environment. And we know the World Health Organization tells us that outside of the medical setting, your most high-risk situation is if you're sitting within uh, two meters, face-to-face contact for 15 minutes or more. So we know on an aircraft, um, your risk will be related to um, your duration of exposure, how long you're there, the conditions of your environment, your own susceptibility to infection. But the protection that the aircraft gives you that the bar doesn't, and I didn't know this, and I'm actually, my father's a pilot, coincidentally, but we don't talk about this, um, is the ventilation on an aircraft. So the aircraft is required to have 10 to 15 air exchange per hour. And that is actually um, better than in many hospital settings where the range is 6 to 12 air exchanges per hour. So that mix is sometimes 75% fresh air, 25% recirculated, or it could be 50-50. But all of that recirculated air goes through a high-efficiency filter that removes about 99% of airborne particles. So your best situation is actually when you're airborne and that ventilation system is working. There's all kinds of studies that show, as I just said, it's akin to a hospital setting. Um, And in addition, the other protective factor for you when the aircraft is operating is the way the air is set up already to circulate. It comes in from above you and then it goes out through the vent at your feet. It's already set up to minimize the circulation from front to back of the aircraft. It's meant to come in and then go out. So they're already set up to sort of minimize that um, exchange of air from passenger to passenger as much as possible. But your highest risk is when the aircraft is stopped. And when people are moving back and forth uh, in the aisle, and then that ventilation system is sometimes reduced or stopped. So that's where the higher risk situation is, just like at security in any lineup, if there's not sufficient ventilation. Well, that sounds like 50-50 then, because that's a lot of the time that you spend on an airplane is not up in the air, it's on the ground, either waiting to take off or landing. So as an epidemiologist, Cynthia, would you get on an airplane tomorrow? So again, I would do my own risk assessment. What's my susceptibility to infection? Um, and what, who do I live that, with that might be susceptible to infection? Always remember uh, what Dr. Henry and all of our public health professionals are telling us about look at your own risk factors, bring hand sanitizer, a mask, sanitize the area. But if you don't need to travel right now, um, I would just reduce the risk. With every um, opportunity we take in life, there are associated risks. 
in spite of any mitigating factors the airlines will attempt to um, implement. All right, Cynthia, thank you very much for your time. You're welcome. Cynthia Carr, epidemiologist and health policy expert with EPI Research. Uh, We're talking about airlines removing that middle seat, no longer having social distancing on board a flight. Just when people are starting to feel a little bit more comfortable about moving around, I don't think we feel that comfortable where we would want to be on a flight that is jam-packed like that. Uh, Waiting to hear from the federal government on this, the transport ministry in particular, about how they feel about this. Health Minister Adrian Dix here in BC yesterday essentially demanding some info from the Fed saying, listen, what is your justification for this? Because clearly in BC, they don't think it's a good idea. Would you feel comfortable enough to get on an airplane tomorrow with no social distancing, meaning you're going to be shoulder to shoulder, potentially, unless you're traveling with family, with people that you don't know? You can email me, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, have a listen to who is back with us this morning. The stranger that is Nikki Reitmeyer. Good morning, Nikki. Good morning. I feel like you were going to say, oh, look what the cat dragged in. (laughs) No, that's a phrase that I think my mother would have used at some point. (laughs) No, everybody's been busy doing other things. You were doing the Jill Bennett show yesterday, as a matter of fact. How'd that go? Mm -hmm. Uh, it was great. It was fun. It, it was nice to, to, you know, work some different hours and, and talk to some different listeners. And ultimately, I think, I think we had a really good time. You know, it was funny just moments ago, we were all kind of saying this is the first time in the past month that our show has been back together That's again. Right. Greg Schott, Victor Young, uh, yourself and myself finally back together as a show. Again. All here. But that's a that's a sign of the times when it comes to summer vacations, no kidding, isn't it? Right? Yeah, not yeah. that any of us went anywhere. We were all just home. Uh, but yeah. yes, that is the way it goes. <laughs> uh, let's talk about what's going on with breweries. Why are they kind of waiting for this Vancouver City Council meeting today? Right. So Vancouver Brewery is hoping for some good news today. They're hoping that at 9.30 this morning, when there is a city council meeting, bylaws will change in their favor to allow them space for patios. So as it currently stands breweries in Vancouver, they don't have patios set up. They're not allowed to have patios. And that includes distilleries as well. So this would allow them to do that for the very first time. And the same bylaw would also allow for other establishments to expand patios onto private property. So I think everybody is familiar with the news as of late that most bars and restaurants were allowed to apply for licenses to extend some patio space. But that comes with a little bit of a caveat that space that they were allowed to expand into were city-owned parking spaces or sidewalks. So now we're talking about expanding onto private property as well. Okay, so this this would make a big deal for them, right? Because that means that more people can come, they can fit in a few more people and still do proper distancing. Exactly, because some of these breweries, you know, particularly Powell Street Brewery, they were saying we can fit 30 odd people in our in our brewery on a good day on a normal time, but we can't fit people in and have them social distance. So they're really stuck right now. Basically, they're allowing people to come in, pick up beer, pick up a growler, and then you have to head back out the door again. But if this rule is changed, they could soon allow people to sit down on a patio that's been set up in their parking spaces in their own in their own parking lot and allow them to enjoy beers there. I know uh, David Boquette was speaking on Global News. He's the co-owner of Powell Street Brewing, and he said, like right now, they are in desperate need of patios to help revitalize their business. It's fairly dire. I think it will make that difference between us staying alive or shutting down. Yeah. 
it's it's sad to think about it that way, but COVID has been a big struggle for us. That is sad to think about it that way, because, you know, for a lot, of, a lot of things in the liquor industry have changed, right? A lot, of, a lot of rules have opened up, and it's sad that it hasn't helped everybody. Yeah, it's, I'm glad to see that BC is updating some of these archaic rules that they had around, I mean, the, the thought that you couldn't even really have a patio set up, a little pop-up patio outside your establishment. I mean, the world's not going to end if a if a restaurant sets up a, a couple seats outside in, in the sunshine in the front of their restaurant on, you know, a bit of sidewalk space. So I'm glad that finally uh, Vancouver is addressing some of these, these issues and other cities around the province are addressing them as well. Hopefully we see that extended to breweries and then hopefully, at least it's my opinion, that we keep doing this into, you know, the years that come, that it's not just a temporary measure as it's sort of being sold right now. And I know Boquette was saying that he's already applied for an application, so he's good to go on that that end of the spectrum. He's just waiting for the city to take action. So if Vancouver's uh, vote goes the way that he's hoping it will today, new patios could start popping up at Vancouver breweries sooner than you'd think. I've talked to the development manager at the city of Vancouver and he said as soon as a public hearing gets approved for patios for breweries, uh, he said the next day we would be getting our permit issued. So hopefully uh, we get it on July 1st for Canada Day. That'd be fantastic. Okay, that's fast. That is really fast. Yes. I know, I kind of thought, whoa, geez, that's fast. But he's already, he said the province was okay to deal with to get the application uh, and, the, and the permit to, to open the patio. He's now just waiting on the city to finally pull the trigger. And as of, you know, today, he is ready to set up. He already has the chairs and the tables and everything ready wow. to go. So as of July 1st, he's hoping that when people show up to grab a beer to celebrate Canada Day, they'll be able to sit and enjoy one on his patio space. You know, I said this to David Eby when we talked to him, uh, was it last week, I guess, when I said, you can't really take all this stuff away from people once you've given it to them, like when it comes to the liquor rules, right? Like you've loosened up, people like it, like the world hasn't ended. How do you take that away? And he said, yeah, that's a good point uh, because a lot of this is on a trial basis, but I'm guessing it's here to stay. Patios are different because I know the city of Vancouver has said what? This is temporary, right? Till October 1st? Yeah, they're saying it's a temporary measure, but like you said, how do you take it away again? Once know. you've once you've given someone something or a business something that's helped improve their business, it's helped improve the culture of the city, customers are enjoying it, how do you just say, oh, yeah. sorry, it was temporary and take it away again? Exactly. If people are enjoying it, let it happen. Nikki, thank you. Thanks. That is our Nikki Reitmeyer. I've seen in my neighborhood alone about four different restaurants already get ready for these, uh, you know, sidewalk patios, taking over the parking spots kind of on the road. And I'm curious to see in the next weeks or so who's going to be sitting out there enjoying all that. This is Mornings with Simi. Interesting note out of Toronto this morning, uh, the mayor there, John Tory, is asking Toronto City Council to make masks mandatory in all public indoor settings. And they're doing this to obviously try to slow down the spread of COVID-19. So they're hoping to get that all into place. And if so, the mayor says the order is going to come into effect a week from today. It has to be approved by city council first. So there are numerous mayors, John Tory, along with the mayors of, of Hamilton and others, are asking the premier, Doug Ford, to make it mandatory. They have rejected the idea. The province has. uh, So they're leaving it to individual cities and municipalities to do that. Sounds like Toronto taking that step forward. Now, one of the reasons why they, you know, want to do that, of course, as I said, is to spread 
COVID, to reduce the spread of COVID-19, keep things safe out there so that other things can get back, get back to normal, like the film industry. Film production is starting to ramp up again. They're planning for that. We've been talking about that. And in fact, in the Okanagan, they are leading the way on this. So we wanted to talk about that. We're joined now by John Summerland, who's the Okanagan Film Commissioner. John, thanks for being here. Oh, thank you very much. How exciting. It is exciting. So tell me, what is going on in the Okanagan? Uh, so we uh, we had probably about a three-week month stop from film, and then uh, it picked up because we had some smart people who decided to quarantine themselves all together in a resort and make a little uh, Lifetime movies, which are, you know, the romance Lifetime channel movies. And, yeah. Yeah, so we found ones that were weddings in a destination, and made the ones that were wedding destination movies in the same resort. We all stayed together and, you know, paid people's mortgages and kept on going. So you, you've you still been making things during this time? Yeah, so we shot a couple uh, uh, Lifetime Channel movies. We did it with Canadian talent, so all local, local Nugget talent, with directors from Vancouver and actors from Vancouver, and we all stayed together. We created a new... Um, crew member right. that was a health and safety officer and there's two of them on set and they come to set every day when we get up we go into set we get our temperature checked we get our PPE we get everything done and then they hand us our walkie talkies with the uh, sterilization equipment we've been sterilized everything breakfast tables were sterilized they're six feet apart everybody it's just like normal world out there um, we just tended to do it a little quicker, which was great. Um, we have WorkSafe BC on set learning with us, the ins and outs. Um, but so far, so great. So, so we have three more going right now. That's amazing. So then do you think this is an example then for other productions elsewhere? Uh, I truly believe it is. I mean, WorkSafe learned. Like, so now they know prior to what works and what doesn't work. So um, everybody will now have a health and safety officers on their sets. They should. They should have. A, they have to have a plan. You have to have a safety plan for each shoot before you can go out there now. So I think it's, I think this is great. Even without COVID, this is a smart way to do business. We're all going to be safer. Right, and I'd imagine that the hunger out there right now for content is pretty big. Oh, for sure. Yeah, still their lifetime. It's going to be a lot harder once we try to get the Hollywood movies made. Uh, especially here in Canada, in, because they to bring up talent from L.A. is going to be a, a major issue. Nobody mm-hmm. wants to quarantine for 14 days in a hotel and then, you know, not be able to go to the gym, not be able to do anything. So that's an obstacle. But making these little movie of the week television movies that can have Canadian talent, we can just keep pumping these out and fill up, you know, some space. But Hollywood's going to take a bit of longer time to get going. Right. So, you know, the bigger blockbusters, it'll it'll be a while. Right. But I mean, if that's the only obstacle, getting people to quarantine, I'm thinking, you know what, that can be overcome. Yeah, totally. Uh, it, it'll probably start off in sound stages. Like, you probably don't have enough sound stages for what we need. It's easier to quarantine in a yeah. sound stage. So we can do that. So movies that we can build will be easier to do. But again, trying to get some, you know some big movie star to say, hey, you can't come out of your hotel room for two weeks is going to be a major issue. So Hollywood may have a resurgence of their own industry, which should be, which isn't bad. That's not a bad thing. There should be enough to go around. Uh, John, thank you for your time. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi.
There's Alessia Cara right there, big winner at the Junos last night, picking up three awards, I believe. Different kind of award ceremony, though. They motored through something like 42-odd categories or so in 90 minutes, and of course, it was all happening virtually. We thought, let's talk about this. Uh, Joining us now is music publicist Eric Alper to talk about the results last night. Good morning, Eric. Good morning. This was the first award show I ever attended in my pajamas, and (laughs) hopefully not the last. Maybe I'll just do this in public all the time. I think you should. That's how I watch every award show, is usually in my pajamas. (laughs) I I didn't even know this was going on. They kept it pretty low-key. I think it's low-key because that's just the world that we're living in. You know, it's, it's hard to break through the clutter of everybody at home and everybody bombarded with what's going on, not just on a more serious note of world problems and Mm -hmm. world issues. um, But I think that um, when your competition is everything out there in the world, including the 72,000 channels that our TV has and radio stations um, are, are accessible by, it's hard to break through with anything these days and have something stick. Um, And I know for a lot of the artists, uh, they were just finally able to see the results of something that was supposed to happen back in March. In fact, a lot of the artists were already there when the Junos were cancelled, unfortunately, in Saskatoon. Right, that's true. Okay, they certainly wasted no time, though. They're, they managed to make it through a lot of categories in an hour and a half. This was brilliant. Um, yeah, you know, they, it, it's a lot more subtle. There's certainly no applause or no speeches to be had, but I think that this is what we have to prepare ourselves for with not just the Junos, but we saw with the daytime Emmys and the BET Awards over the weekend um, that predetermined speeches, predetermined winners, and letting the winners notify uh, get notified so they can come up with a 30-second speech and please don't go over that time, um, works. And I think it works for for some segment of the population. Of course, people want to tune in to see about what people are wearing and uh, and the amazing performances and speeches. But this one felt like, you know what? It felt, it felt like an award show after 9-11. And I don't mean mm. in the depressing state of it. I know what you mean, but yeah. Every, but yeah, like the excitement level is hard to come across sometimes when there is no audience and there is no energy and when there is no feedback. I just reckon, I I just remember those days after 9-11 where things were still going on, but there just seemed to be a tinge of sadness because we all realized why we weren't there. And the Junos last night were kind of felt like that to me. You know, the, you know, having COVID still hanging over us. um, Yeah. Mark, Mark the Junos in the way that they did it yesterday. But, but at least they did it. You know what I mean? Like yeah. they found a way to move forward to do this because a lot of other things have just been canceled. Yeah. And, and the Canadian music industry needed this. Um, you know, this was one of the hardest hit industry in this country and around the world when it comes to um, every country's respective music industries and arts industries. Um with the music industry, they were one of the first people and the first sectors to be shut down completely and will be one of the last ones to reopen with concerts and record stores uh, and new releases. Um, even though that artists are still continuing to release new music on a record pace. In fact, Spotify used to upload something in the neighborhood of 22,000 songs a day and about 40,000 tracks on New Music Friday. That number has almost tripled to almost 60,000 tracks a day because people are 
artists are still recording. They're doing it, you know, with safe distancing or in isolation, and they're coming up with live tracks and archive material and demos to actually release to make sure that well, people aren't forgetting about them. Well, I'm sure they have more time to be creative too, right? If you're at home, if you're in lockdown, you're home, you can create more music. Yeah, to a certain extent. I mean, I, I, I think some sectors really do thrive on having other people around them to create. Um, and it's really hard when you're an artist and you don't have your producer or your engineer or the bandmates that you that you've gone through war and back with being on the road in the middle of the night, driving from Winnipeg to Saskatoon, you know, that, that kind of stuff um, is noticeably absent in some of the songs that I'm hearing and, and getting um, from different artists. So, you know, there's not a, a, a bright jumpy pop song right. um, coming across my desk. These more seem to be a little bit more slower, a little bit more ballad type. Um, but having the Junos at this time, I think certainly gave a lot of artists a nice sales boost, but also just let them know that we're still here and still surviving and thriving. All right, Eric, thank you so much for your time. No problem. Thanks so much for having me. That's Eric Alper, music publicist, talking about the Junos. Yes, the Junos were held online last night virtually, and they made it through. If you ever wondered, like, oh, these award ceremonies, they take so long. This one did not. 42 categories, 90 minutes, done. Uh, there were some performances. There were some, you know, some speeches, people talking. And as Eric said, he hopes this is one of the things that lasts. Is it making those award shows very efficient and still managing to hand out some important awards there? This is Mornings with Simi. Now, I know there are an awful lot of people out there who would love to visit a loved one in a long-term care home. That just hasn't been possible the last couple of months because of the way the COVID-19 pandemic just raged through some of those facilities. Hopefully today, we're going to hear some news on that front. So Health Minister Adrian Dix and Provincial Health Officer Dr. Bonnie Henry having a press conference at noon today, and the topic is long-term care homes. So let's see if we can get a bit of a preview of that. Joining us now is Mike Class and the acting CEO of the BC Care Providers Association. Good morning, Mike. Good morning, Simi. Okay, so fingers crossed. Are you hoping for good news today? I am hoping for good news. Uh, we, we have some indication. Obviously, the media is reporting it. We heard yesterday from the ministry that uh, an announcement is pending uh, at noon today. And uh, for many families and many residents that have been longing for that, those visits to resume, uh, it hopefully will bring some really good news. How difficult has this been for you to manage at the Care Providers Association? Because I can imagine you get phone calls from people all the time. I consider what we do to be uh, pale in comparison to what's happening on the front lines. Um, you know, they, from, the, from the workers that are providing the support for seniors to the uh, people who are running the care homes, they're probably hearing from the family members who are desperate, you know, and it, and it goes from... Um, you know, uh, couples have been separated. I, I heard of a, I was contacted about a couple in Williams Lake in their 90s uh, that were just longing for that time together, lived together, you know, uh, for, for 60 years. Um, and then uh, just, you know, uh, sons and daughters who are really just absolutely desperate to have that connection. And then the residents themselves, there are reports that we're hearing of you know, some cognitive and, and physical decline happening just because they don't have that regular chance to get up and, and go out and visit and, and connect with family. Uh, you know, a lot of care home operators have done a great job of putting in place uh, tools like FaceTime and, and Zoom and what have you to allow those connections. 
but there's nothing like having that uh, person-to-person contact. So are you confident about this? Like, can this be done safely? Well, uh, when we put out uh, our letter to Dr. Bonnie Henry on on June 18th, we put together a three-point plan that included uh, some additional resources to make sure we didn't take staff off of the front lines of care, that we had somebody to manage and schedule uh, the visits themselves, a little bit of um, funding for uh, PPE because we don't want to be taking away uh, PPE that'll be um, for be used by health workers so mm-hmm. family members can mask up. And then just some regulatory power so that if, if the care operator doesn't deem the visit to be uh, safe, uh, that they have some ability to say no if necessary. But generally speaking, um, you know, we've seen a few places roll it out. Ontario, uh, I think about a couple of weeks ago, started with their initial visit program, but it was very limited. It was one member per family. Uh, it was outside only and uh, a full screening process had to happen before you could uh, make that visit. So we'll see what we roll out today. But this virus, once it gets inside a care home, is uh, just unbelievably difficult to stop. And so, yes, we have to absolutely make sure that the safety of of, uh, residents and of staff uh, is first and foremost. I get the impression, and I'm sure you do as well, that when it comes to visiting family members, people, they'll they'll give them a rule. They'll follow it. They just want to be able to spend some time with their loved one that's in a care home. Oh, and I, I don't doubt that will happen almost all the time. Uh, if there are situations where uh, emotions run high or, or if the operator um, themselves is a bit short-staffed and just can't facilitate at that time, we just have to make sure that, again, all the, the rules are observed. I mean, there are some that are proposing uh, maybe going another step by actually providing some training to families. I think that might be um, uh, perhaps a next step to look at. What kind of training? could... Uh, Well, just more um, on the proper use of PPE, uh, other kind of practices to observe, you know, um, hand hygiene, other types of things that just make sure that if you are entering within the care home themselves, um, that you're observing um, just a a basic level of uh, safety protocols that will make sure um, that when you visit, you don't pose a threat to to the residents or the staff. Okay, so then people should know that despite whatever good news might be coming today, there it's not just going to be back to normal, back to the way it was before. I think we have to check our expectations, but I, at this point, I think families after four months are really, really keen to to get uh, together again. So I, I really look forward to seeing what this uh, new measure is by uh, the provincial health officer in the in the government. All right, thank you, Mike. You bet. Thanks, Sarah. Mike Klassen. <laughs> happens all the time. Mike Klassen, acting CEO of the BC Care Providers Association. Uh, he, of course, is also waiting today for that press conference at noon. And we will have coverage of that for you right here on 980 CKNW. I'm sure Jill Bennett will be all over that uh, because you want to go and visit your loved ones in long-term care homes. But as Mike was also pointing out, hey, there will be rules to follow. This is not just going to be back to normal or the way it was a couple of months ago. Uh, No, they'll have to be very, very careful uh, because as Mike also pointed out, can't afford to let that virus in even a little bit uh, because of the horrible impact that it has in one of these long-term care homes. So more to come on that for sure. This is Mornings with Simi. 
Well, progress is being made in the move towards the Surrey Police Department, although not everybody in Surrey is happy about that. So the board for the police force was announced yesterday. Seven members who will join Surrey Mayor Doug McCallum and retired Vancouver Police member Bob Rolls to determine the future of the new organization. First thing up is that board will get together to hire a police chief. And all of this comes as the Keep the RCMP in Surrey campaign continues to push for the city to reconsider, even force them to do so, wanting to pressure the provincial government as well to step in. We wanted to talk more about the steps that they're willing to take to do this. Ivan Scott joins us now, the campaign coordinator for Keep the RCMP in Surrey. Ivan, thank you for being here. Uh, good morning, Simi. Thank you very much for, uh, for for getting me on, and I appreciate uh, talking to you again. All right, so let's talk about this potential legal action you've talked about. Where does this come from? What would you do? Well, I think uh, I think to put the whole thing in context here, um, Simi, uh, is that uh, just just quickly who we are. You know, I represent the the Keep the RCMP in Surrey, which is a community based volunteer, completely nonpartisan organisation, whose sole goal is to keep the RCMP as our municipal police force. So that's where we're coming from. We have, we've got nearly 50,000 members at present, and it's growing daily, and we've been working on our goal for 16 months, and we're not going to go away anytime soon. Now, yesterday, the Surrey Police Board was announced by the BC government, by Minister Farnworth, much to the celebration of Mayor McCallum, but any safe Surrey coalition, or what I call the unsafe Surrey coalition, depending on your perspective, but we were also, we were also pleased that a Surrey Police Board was announced. It's something that we've been talking about for the last... Oh, man, since our first days of existence. and But having a police board will achieve two things, and this is why we're excited about it in actual fact. Right. So The, the board will be chaired by McCallum, but it will have this responsibility for controlling police in, in Surrey, and McCallum only has one vote in all of those nine consensus all those out of nine, that in the consensus decisions that have to be taken. So in actual fact... He has, less, he has less authority in the police board than he had before, and, and we welcome that. And the board will determine whether this police transition is the right thing for Surrey, still, and um, from a financial safety professional and uh, what the overwhelming majority of citizen, Surrey citizen voters want for the city. So they could, in actual fact, call for a referendum to be held to find out what the citizens want. And in actual fact, they but, Ivan, could... that doesn't sound likely it's going to happen. This just sounds like another step on the on the way towards you know hiring a police chief and getting this thing formed. Well, I tell you what, the police chief is not going to be hired tomorrow because, in actual fact, the board doesn't have any mandate or have any uh, guidelines or anything. They still have to determine what it is that they do. You know, you don't just pull a, a board manual off the shelf and say, "Okay, now we have a police board." These things are custom-built, and this will take months to put into, into effect. And at that stage, when they're comfortable with what needs to be done, that's when they can uh, call in a, a, a police chief and say, OK, we want the police chief to now do whatever we want. And, uh, you know, when we get to that point, and as I say, even before then, they could kibosh the whole thing and say, this is not what Surrey needs or wants, and they could still close it down and... Uh, that's you know, the NPF is also of that of that uh, belief, and everybody else is of that belief. So this is not a bad thing. Right. That does seem a little bit like wishful thinking, though, Ivan, that they would actually be the ones to shut it all down. But you talked about potential legal action. What would that look like? What would you do? Well, you know, we've heard our members loud and clear, and, and they don't want the, the Surrey SPD, and they, they wish the RCMP to stay. So, you know, we're going to carry on our fight unabated and uh, using every civilized avenue that we can, including the legal option. So people are, are asking us and say, well, this is it. And, and uh, you know, we've, 
it's incredible the 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 anti the anti SPD here, and, and as I say, we've we've heard them loud and clear. And the legal option could be another way to go. So we have time, we believe, and uh, we're looking at all these options. And if that's the way to go, then uh, that's the way we'll go. How how do you feel this has been building? Like in the beginning, you know, people felt like, oh, maybe this isn't going to happen. But how do you feel people are now? Do they? Do you get more people attracted to your group, essentially? Oh, Simi, you can't believe, it. We, you know, we're putting out lawn signs now, and we, we, this was our next sort of strategy, and I'm, I don't know if you've actually driven around, sorry, but every every corner you turn around, there's one, another one of our lawn signs, and we're approaching 4,000 of these things, and yeah, <laughs> political parties have a have a, 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 a difficulty in inviting people to take their lawn signs. I have a difficulty to supplying people who, who want our lawn signs. So at this particular point in time, I believe we've got more lawn signs than you've ever seen in the history of Surrey ever. And right. it's growing every day, I can assure you, Simi. I know you've been appealing to the provincial government to do something here. What what would be their motivation? It would be an extraordinary thing to have the provincial government come in and overturn something that an elected municipal government is doing. Why do you think they should do that? Well, they should do that to me because they're finally responsible for the safety of, of Surrey. And, and they've, they've, they've had a, they signed a thing a few years back called the Surrey Accord, which was supposed to look at the, uh, the city of Surrey before this whole thing appeared. And uh, what, what they've, they've, they've been completely, uh, let's say, not disaffected, but they just completely ignored us. They ignored our petition. They've ignored all this. They've ignored the thousands of emails. And I really don't quite understand this. And, uh, you know, soon we're gonna, they're going to have to take cognizance of what the Surrey people want, because the vast majority, as far as I'm concerned, do not want this to occur. And they are facilitating Mr. McCallum to carry on with his police force. And but so what are they supposed to do, though? That's an, the elected government of Surrey. It was the elected government of Surrey. Yes, I agree. Uh, and we have no problem. He was elected as the mayor, and he is the mayor, and I have no problem with that. I, I'm not saying that he was illegally put in there. Mm-hmm. But, you know, times have changed. And once, the, once he came out and said what he was actually going to do with the RCMP, immediately people got on their hind, on their hindness and said, that's not what we voted for. We voted for the possibility of having a look. Okay, let's have a look at it and see what it costs, see what it Maybe it's a good thing, but give us a, a chance to talk. And uh, he never did that. There's been no transparency. He's just rushed ahead. And even even the councillors themselves, if you look at that, three of the of his Surrey uh, Safe Surrey Council uh, did a pivot and came around to the other side. They saw the inequities. They saw the ridiculousness of the whole thing. And uh, so. Their voices are there, so you know why could the government not all, not also do that? They just have to listen to us and uh, do something about it. All right, Ivan, listen. Thank you very much for your time this morning. To me, it's always great to talk to you. Thank you. That is Ivan Scott. He is a campaign coordinator for Keep the RCMP in Surrey. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, it is one of the most premium tourist attractions, not just here, but in Canada, around the world. Right, everybody comes to Whistler except in 2020. Now, Whistler is reopened. It reopened yesterday, so it's hoping perhaps you might come for a visit. To talk more about that, we're joined now by Whistler Mayor Jack Crompton. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. Well, things are open. Tell me about that. Uh, I walked through the village yesterday just to see it all uh, happening, and, and it's vibrant, it's exciting, and it's different. I think, you know, lineups for 
chairlifts and the gondola, there are people wearing masks. Haven't seen that before. Um, but generally, it's we're excited to be to be back in businesses. Dr. Henry keeps saying fewer faces and open spaces. Uh, Whistler has lots of open space yeah, to offer people, so we're uh, trying to get people into the mountains and 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 get them into those wide open spaces so they can experience that, which is exciting for us. Yeah, this must be a, a very challenging time for Whistler, given that it is such a tourist destination. How quiet has it been there? The last three months have been I mean, very, very few people. I think BC really took the direction to stay home and, and help flatten the curve very seriously. Um, over the last couple of weeks, people are returning and uh, starting to feel like home again. Uh, Whistler and Vancouver are so connected that when there's no Vancouverites in town, it just doesn't feel um, like Whistler. So it's nice to see people back. Okay, so how is it all hotels are open and what kind of distancing and measures have been put in place? Yeah, I would say the vast majority of our hotels are open, restaurants are open, Whistler is open. Um, and for the last three months, we've really been focusing our attention on how we can deliver a safe opening. And so you'll see um, where physical distancing isn't possible, the requirement to wear masks, uh, you'll see decals on the ground as to where you should stand and then a real effort like i said to get people into the mountains onto lakes onto the valley trail um into into open spaces where people can uh adventure differently we're we're suggesting that this is a season to adventure differently mindfully get uh into the open spaces and, and and be on your own have you talked to any of the kind of hotels about reservations like is there do you think that appetite to come up to whistler Seems like it, yeah. We're we're seeing, and and that's the message: is make sure you plan your holidays this summer because British Columbians are traveling, and we are seeing a real uptake on on getting away for a week or a weekend and and really enjoying our province. Okay, so if people are looking for a place to go, and I know many people are, Mayor Crompton, what would you like them to remember to keep in mind about coming to Whistler? Be mindful. Bring your face covering. Uh, you know, when you're up in the mountains, you won't need to wear it, but there are situations where you will, and it'll be a different experience. Um, we've I walked through the Squamish Lowell Cultural Center and the Odean Art Museum yesterday, and people are, are providing service from behind a, uh, a window, wearing masks. It's a different experience, but standing in front of you know Canada's greatest art and and culture is that same inspiring experience so um, come ready to be inspired but come ready to uh, experience things in a safe manner right and a lot of those trails though up in Worcester they can get pretty busy can't they yeah but we, that, that's one of the goals that we have that we have so many kilometers of trails is spreading people out better and ensuring that they get access to some of those trails that are less used than others. Once you get up into uh, the recreation area at the top of Whistler Blackcomb, there is a tremendous amount of territory to uh, discover. And so I always say in Whistler, you're very close to no one. (laughs) It's very easy (laughs) to get into some of that open space. And so uh, I think it just means finding that space and and, and seeking it out, which this is a good place to find it. I know that usually Whistler in the summertime is also a very busy happening place, but usually a bit of a party place as well. Are you concerned about that? 
Yeah, we're making sure that uh, the services that we provide are safe services and that people are uh, physically distanced and that we're not taking um, risks with this. I think as a province, we have proved that when we trust science and listen to the epidemiologists and, and, and scientists among us, we do well. And I think that that's something that we've been taking very seriously and working hard for the last three months to ensure that we're ready to provide. All right. Well, listen, good luck. Thank you so much. I appreciate the time to chat. You have a great day. You too. That's Jack Crompton, the mayor of Whistler, uh, talking about reopening that community. They had a three-month closure. They reopened yesterday, and they are welcoming people up there, provided you remember the rules, right? The masks, the physical distancing. Uh, Yes, people usually, in a lot of cases, go up there to party, but they're saying be mindful while you're up there. Enjoy the larger, wider open spaces. That's what they want people to do. And I'm sure we'll be uh, talking more about that for sure.